Section 4 of the Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. The Constitution and Its Makers, Part 2. By making these omissions, we come now to the vital point, which is, what kind of a government did the makers of the Constitution intend to establish, and how did they mean to have it work? They were, it must be remembered, preparing a scheme of government for a people peculiarly fitted to make any system of free institutions work well. The people of the United Colonies were homogeneous. They came in the main from Great Britain and Ireland, with the addition of the Dutch in New York, of some Germans from the Palatinate, and of a few French Huguenots, whose ability and character were as high as their numbers were relatively small. But an overwhelming majority of the American people, in 1787, were of English and Scotch descent, and they, as well as the others from other lands, were deeply imbued with all those principles of law which were the bulwarks of English liberty. In this new land, men had governed themselves, and there was at that moment no people on earth so fit for, or so experienced in self-government, as the people of the thirteen colonies. Their colonial governments were representative, and in essence democratic. They became entirely so when the revolution ended, and the last English governor was withdrawn. In the four New England colonies, local government was in the hands of the town meetings, the purest democracies then or now extant. But it is best to remember, what the men of 1787 well knew, that these little democracies moved within fixed bounds determined by the laws of the states under which they had their being. For such a people, of such a character, with such a past and such habits and traditions, only one kind of government was possible, and that was a democracy. The makers of the Constitution called their new government a republic, and they were quite correct in doing so, for it was of necessity republican in form. But they knew that what they were establishing was a democracy. One has but to read the debates to see how constantly present that fact was to their minds, Democracy was then a very new thing in the modern world. As a system, it had not been heard of, except in the fevered struggles of the Italian city republics, since the days of Rome and Greece. And although the convention knew perfectly well that they were establishing a democracy, and that it was inevitable that they should do so, some of them regarded it with fear, and all with a deep sense of responsibility and caution. The logical sequence, as exhibited in history, and as accepted by the best minds of the eighteenth century, struggling to give to men a larger freedom, was democracy, anarchy, despotism. The makers of the Constitution were determined that so far as in them lay the American Republic, should never take the second step, never revolve through the vicious circle which had culminated in empire in Rome, in the tyrants of the Grecian, and the despots of the Italian cities, which in their turn had succumbed to the absolutism of foreign rulers. The vital question was how should this be done? How should they establish a democracy with a strong government? For after their experience of the Confederation, they regarded a weak government with horror, and at the same time so arranged the government that it should be safe as well as strong and free from the peril of lapsing into an autocracy on the one hand, or into disorder and anarchy on the other. They did not try to set any barrier in the way of the popular will, 
but they sought to put effective obstacles in the path to sudden action, which was impelled by popular passion, or popular whim, or by the excitement of the moment. They were the children of the Great Rebellion and the Blessed Revolution in the England of the seventeenth century, and they were steeped in the doctrine of limiting the power of the king. But here they were dealing with a sovereign who could not be limited. For while a king can be restrained by transferring his power to the people, when the people are sovereign, their powers cannot be transferred to anybody. There is no one to transfer them to. And if they are taken away, the democracy ceases to exist, and another government, fundamentally different, takes its place. The makers of the Constitution not only knew that the will of the people must be supreme, but they meant to make it so. That which they also aimed to do was to make sure that it was the real will of the people which ruled, and not their momentary impulse, their well-considered desire and determination, and not the passion of the hour. The child, perhaps, of excitement and mistake, inflamed by selfish appeals and terrorized by false alarms. The main object, therefore, was to make it certain that there should be abundant time for discussion and consideration, that the public mind should be thoroughly and well informed, and that the movements of the machinery of government should not be so rapid as to cut off due deliberation. With this end in view, they established with the utmost care a representative system, with two chambers, and an executive of large powers, including the right to veto bills. They also made the amendment of the Constitution a process at once slow and difficult, for they intended that it should be both, and indeed that it should be impracticable without a strong, determined, and lasting public sentiment in favor of change. Finally, they established the federal judiciary, and in the Supreme Court of the United States they made an addition to the science of government, second only in importance to their unequaled work in the development of the principle of federation. That great tribunal has become in the eyes of the world the most remarkable among the many remarkable solutions devised by the Convention of 1787 for the settlement of the gravest governmental problems. John Marshall, with the intellect of the jurist and the genius of the statesman, saw the possibilities contained in the words which called the court into being. By his interpretation, and that of his associates and their successors, the Constitution attained to flexibility, and escaped the rigidity which then and now is held up as the danger and the defect of a written instrument. In their hands the Constitution has been expanded to meet new conditions, and new problems, as they have arisen. In their hands, also, the Constitution has been the protection of the rights of states, and of the rights of men, and laws which, in the opinion of the court, violated its principles and provisions, have been declared by judicial decision in specific cases to be unconstitutional. By making the three branches of the government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, entirely separate and yet coordinate, and by establishing a representative system and creating a supreme court of extraordinary powers, the framers of the Constitution believed that they had made democracy not only all-powerful, but at the same time safe, and that they had secured it from the gradual conversion into autocracy on the one hand, and from the destruction by a too rapid motion and too quick response to the passions of the moment on the other. If ever men were justified by results, they have been. The Constitution, in its development and throughout our history, has surpassed the hopes of its friends, and utterly disappointed the predictions and the criticisms of its foes. Under it, the United States has grown into the mighty republic we see today. New states have come into the Union, 
vast territories have been acquired, population and wealth have increased to a degree which has amazed the world, and life, liberty, and property have been guarded beneath the flag which is at once the symbol of the country and of the constitution under which the nation has risen to its high success. Such results would seem to be a potent argument in favor of the instrument of government through which they have been achieved. But to argue from results seems just now out of fashion. Actual accomplishment, it would appear, is nothing. According to the new dispensation, our decision must be made on what is promised for the future, not on what has been done in the past. Under this novel doctrine, as I have observed it, we are to be guided chiefly by envy and discontent, and are to act on the general principle that whatever is wrong. What, then, is the plan by which the popular government, which existed under the Constitution for more than a century, and which has been mysteriously lost during the past few years, is to be restored to us? It is proposed, to put it in a few words, to remove all the barriers which the makers of the instrument established in order to prevent rash, hasty, and passionate action, and to secure deliberation, consideration, and due protection for the rights of minorities and of individuals. This is to be accomplished in two ways. By emasculating the representative system through the compulsory initiative and referendum, and by breaking down the courts through the recall. These are the changes by which it is intended to revive popular government. Incidentally, they strike at the very heart of the Constitution as the framers planned and made it. For they will convert the deliberate movement of the government machinery, by which its makers intended to secure to democracy both permanence and success, into an engine which starts at the touch of an electric button, which is as quick in response as a hair-trigger pistol, and as rapid in operation as a self-cocking revolver. These new and precious ideas are of a ripe age. In fact, they have passed many hundreds of years beyond the century fixed by Dr. Johnson for the establishment of a literary reputation at a point where it might be intelligently discussed. Let us therefore consider and criticize them. The compulsory initiative and the compulsory referendum need not detain us long, for the effect of those devices is obvious enough. The entire virtue or the entire vice, each of us may use the word he prefers, of these schemes rests in the word compulsory. The initiative, without compulsion, is complete in the rights of petition secured by the first of the first ten amendments of the Constitution, which really constituted a Bill of Rights. The right of petition became the subject of bitter controversy at a later time, and was vindicated once and for all by John Quincy Adams's great battle in its behalf, more than three-quarters of a century ago. There are few instances where petitions representing a general popular demand have not met a response in action, whether in Congress or in the state legislatures. Still fewer, where respectful attention and consideration have not been accorded to them. But the responsibility for action, and the form such action should take, has rested with the representative body. When the initiative is made compulsory, a radical change is effected. A minority, sometimes a small minority, of the voters, always a small minority of the people, can compel the legislature to pass a law and submit it to the voters, even when a very large majority of the people neither ask for nor, as far as the evidence goes, desire it. In this way, all responsibility is taken from the representative body, and they become mere clerks for drafting and recording laws, poor puppets who move mechanically when some irresponsible outsiders twitch the strings. 
It is a substitution of government by factions, and fractions for the government by the people. The representative body, as hitherto constituted, represented the whole people. Under the new plan, it is to be merely the helpless instrument of a minority, perhaps a very small minority, of the voters. The voluntary referendum has always existed in this country. In the national government, owing to our dual or federal form, the referendum on constitutional amendments is necessarily made to the states, and it has never been suggested for the laws of the United States, owing to both physical and constitutional difficulties. In the states, the referendum has always been freely used, not only for constitutions and constitutional amendments, but for laws, especially for city charters, local franchises, and the like. But if the referendum is made compulsory, on the demand of a minority of the voters, all responsibility vanishes from the representative body. The representative no longer seeks to represent the whole people or even his own constituency, but simply votes to refer everything to the voters and covers himself completely by pointing to the compulsory referendum. On the other hand, the voters are called upon to legislate. Of the mass of measures submitted, they know and can know nothing. Experience shows that in all referendums a large proportion of the voters decline to vote. Whether this is due to indifference or lack of information, the result is the same. It proves that this system demands from the voters what the most intelligent voters in the world are unable to give. They are required to pass upon laws, many of which they have neither time nor opportunity to understand, without deliberation and without any discussion, except what they can gather from the campaign orator who is, as a rule, interested in other matters, or from an occasional article in a newspaper. They cannot alter or amend. They must vote categorically yes or no. The majority either fails to vote, and the small and interested minority carries its measure, or the majority, in disgust, votes down all measures submitted, good and bad alike, because they do not understand them and will not vote without knowing what their votes mean. The great laws which, both in England and the United States, have been the landmarks of freedom and made ordered liberty possible were not passed and never could have been perfected and passed in such a way as this. This new plan is spoken of by its advocates as progressive. As a matter of fact, it is the reverse of progressive. It is reactionary. Direct legislation by popular vote was familiar, painfully familiar, to Greece and Rome. In both, it led through corruption, violence, and disorder to autocracy and despotism. The direct vote system also proved itself utterly incapable of the government of an extended empire and of large populations. Where government by direct vote miserably failed, representative government, after all deductions have been made, has brilliantly succeeded. The development of the principle and practice of representative government was, as I have already pointed out, the one great contribution of modern times to the science of government. It has shown itself capable of preserving popular government and popular rights without the violence and corruption which resulted of old in anarchy and despotism, and at the same time it has proved its adaptability to the management of large populations and the efficient government of great empires. Representative government was an enormous advance over government by the direct vote of the forum, the agora, or the marketplace which had preceded it, and which had gone down in disaster. It is now proposed to abandon that great advance and to return to the ancient system with its dark record of disorder and failure. This is not progress. It is retreat and retrogression. 
it is the abandonment of a great advance, and a return to that which is not only old and outworn, but which history and experience have alike discredited. Look now for a moment at representative government as we ourselves have known it. Let us not forget, in the first place, that the Congress of the United States, under the Constitution, has been in continuous existence for more than one hundred and twenty years, that with the single exception of the Mother of Parliaments, it is much the oldest representative body of a constitutional character now existing in the world. Let us now remember that the history of the American Congress is in large part the history of the United States, and that we are apt to be proud of that history, as a whole, and of the many great things we as a people have accomplished. Yet, whatever praise history accords to the Congress of the United States in the past, the Congress of the moment and the members of that body in either branch receive but little commendation from their contemporaries. This is perhaps not unnatural, and it certainly has always been customary. Legislative bodies have rarely touched the popular imagination or appeared in a dramatic or picturesque attitude. The conscript fathers, facing in silence the oncoming barbarians of Gaul, Charles I, attempting to arrest the five members, the Continental Congress adopting the Declaration of Independence, the famous oath of the tennis court, are almost the only instances which readily occur to one's mind of representative and legislative bodies upon whom for a brief instant has rested the halo of heroism and from which comes a strong appeal to the imagination the men who fight by land and sea rouse immediate popular enthusiasm but a body of men engaged in legislation does not and cannot offer the fascination or the attraction which are inseparable from the individual man who stands forth alone from the crowd in any great work of life whether of war or peace. We may accept without complaint this tendency of human nature, but I think every dispassionate student of history, as well as every man who has had a share in the work of legislation, may rightfully deprecate the indiscriminate censure and the consistent belittling which pursue legislative bodies. This attitude of mind is not confined to the United States. The press of England treats its Parliament severely enough, although, on the whole, with more respect than is the case with the American press in regard to the American Congress. But running through English novels and essays, we find, as a rule, the same sneer at the representatives of the people as we do here. Very generally, both in this country and abroad, those who write for the public seem to start with a proposition that to be a member of Congress, or a member of Parliament, or a member of the Chamber of Deputies in France, implies some necessary inferiority of mind or character. I do not desire to be rash or violent, but I think this theory deserves a moment's examination, and is, perhaps, open to some doubt. As Mr. Reed, when Speaker of the House, once said, it is a fair inference that a man who can impress himself upon 200,000 people, or upon the whole population of a great state, sufficiently to induce them to send him to the House or Senate, as something more than ordinary qualities, and something more than ordinary force. Then again, as Edmund Burke remarked, you cannot draw an indictment against a whole people, nor, I may add, can you draw an indictment against an entire class. There are good men and bad men in business and in the professions, in the ministry, in medicine, in law, and among scholars. Virtue is not determined by occupation. There are, I repeat, good and bad men, in every profession and calling, among high and low, rich and poor, 
and the honest men who mean to do right largely preponderate. For if they did not, the whole social structure would come crashing to the ground. What is true of business and the professions is true of Congress. There are good and bad men in public life, and the proportion of good to bad, I believe, compares favorably with that of any other occupation. Public men live in the fierce light which beats upon them, as upon the throne. A light never fiercer or more pitiless than now, and for this reason their shortcomings are made more glaring, and their virtues by conquest more shadowed than in private life. This is as it should be, for the man who does wrong in private life is far less harmful than the public servant who is false to his trust. To inflict upon the public servant who is a wrongdoer the severest reprobation is necessary for the protection of the community, but for this very reason we should be extremely careful that no reprobation should be visited unjustly upon any public man. It is an evil thing to betray the public trust, but it is an equally evil thing to pour wholesale condemnation upon the head of every man in public life, good and bad alike. That which suffers most from an injustice like this in the long run is not the public servant who has been unfairly dealt with, for the individual passes quickly, but the country itself. After all, the voters make the representative. If he is not of the highest type, he appears to be that which the majority prefers. Wholesale criticism and abuse of the representatives reflect more on the constituencies, if we stop to consider, than on those whom the constituencies select to represent them. Indiscriminate condemnation and equally indiscriminate belittling of the men who make and execute our laws, whether in state or nation, is not only a reflection upon the American people, but is a blow to the United States and every state in it. They help the guilty to escape and injure the honest and the innocent. They destroy the people's confidence in their own government and lower the country in the eyes of foreign nations. The Congress of the United States embodies the representative principle. The principle of representation, I repeat, has been the great contribution of the English-speaking race to the science and practice of government. The Greeks and the Romans, let me say once more, had pure democracy and legislation by direct vote in theory, at least, and we have but to read Plato's Republic and the laws to learn the defects of the system in use in Athens. Greece failed to establish an empire. She touched the highest peaks of civilization, and finally went to pieces politically beneath the onset of Rome. Rome established a great empire, but after years of bloody struggles between the aristocracy and democracy, it ended in a simple despotism. The free cities of Italy oscillated between anarchy and tyranny, only to fall victims in the end to foreign masters. In Florence, they had elections every three months, and a complication of committee and councils to interpret the popular will. Yet the result was the Medicis and the Habsburgs. It is also to be remembered that the representative principle has been coincident with political liberty, Whatever its shortcomings or defects, and, in all things human, it has its grave defects, it nonetheless remains true that the first care of every strong man, every savior of society, every man on horseback, of every autocrat, is either to paralyze or to destroy the representative principle. It may be that the representative principle is not the cause of political liberty, but there can be no question whatever that the two have always gone hand in hand. 
and that the destruction of one has been the signal for the downfall of the other. The Congress of the United States and the legislatures of the several states embody the representative principle. By that principle, your laws have been made, and the republican form of government sustained for more than a century. Whatever its shortcomings, it has maintained the government of the United States and upheld law and order throughout our borders. End of section 4